0: We're going to take our Bibles and we're going to 1 Samuel chapters 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, and 26. I forgot 27. So if you want to join me in that passage and put your finger there as we pick up in a series that, and this is what happens when I go on vacation and come back, okay, and been planning. Uh, Do I have a sermon do I have something happening? What happened to my sermon? It was there just a little bit ago. We are on. Okay, here we go. If, if we're covering almost nine chapters, you're going to have to buckle up and I'm going to talk really fast. Okay? Okay. So what we're doing is we're talking about this guy, if you've been with us, we're talking about David and Goliath, and a couple of you mentioned, you said, you know, what was, you know, what's the big thing about David and Goliath? The big thing was Goliath, okay, Goliath was huge, this is just an idea to give you a sample of how big he was, well David went out and beat him in battle, and after David beat him in battle, all of a sudden things you would think would go great and glorious, and actually they don't. It's almost like David becomes Robin Hood of the Old Testament. And by the way, that story of Robin Hood in the English background, the, the, the Hebrew version is very, very similar. As you compare the story of David and what happens shortly thereafter, what happens is you have, very, you have very similar parallel situations. you got Robin Hood, okay? That's your David. You've got somebody who is a really cruel Prince John, wicked tyrant. That's King Saul. You have an individual who's going to work for him like the sheriff of Nottingham who's going to work in tangent with the king and has authority and he's going to try to get rid of Robin Hood in what we're going to talk about today. His name is Doig. Okay, he's that type of a character. You have a band of merry men that Robin Hood gets surrounding around him. Well, David has starts off with 400, but then all of a sudden grows to 600 men who are the merry men helping him to basically plunder and go against Saul and give to the poor people who are being oppressed by Saul. You even have the preacher you have your little John-type character. You have two of them that show up in this story, a father and a son. And we'll mention their names Ahimlech and Abiathar. And as you start going through this story, remember what has happened right after David has killed Goliath. David was all of a sudden exalted in the eyes of the people. The people sang the songs about David. He became a a general in Saul's army. And he went out and had victory after victory. And Saul's response to that was Saul became very jealous, very angry. We talked about how Saul When David was in the palace and playing music, he was so angry, so jealous, he cast a javelin at David to try to kill him, not just once, but he did it a second time. Saul, it says, became afraid of him, and we read that a couple different times. And so Saul says, I can't get rid of David with my own hand, I'll put him out in the front lines of a battle, and he'll get killed by the Philistines. He does that on a couple different attempts, one with just regular uh, raids against the Philistines, one when he says, go out, and if you want to get a dowry to be able to have my daughter's hand in marriage, you go out and kill a hundred different Philistines, you yourself. And so he's trying to get rid of David, you know, through another means, And then what happens is we read as the story continues that Saul became his enemy continually. You read a little bit further that Saul says to all of his servants, help me kill David. So he's got the guards, he's got the household, he's got his family members supposedly involved, or at least he thinks they're involved with trying to get rid of David. And so when David marries his daughter, he sends assassins to David's house. King James says messengers. It's the idea of people that are going there to take David out. David has to get out by sneaking out of the window there at night. And David runs to a nearby village called Ramah. Well, Saul sends some troops, some assassins after him to try to kill him there. And we read about that account, how the first set of troops that comes they all of a sudden are overcome by the spirit of God. And they're doing praising and worshiping and they can't kill David. Saul hears about, sends a second group of soldiers. Same thing happens. Saul sends a third group of soldiers. Same thing happens. God's protecting David. God's God's really involved with taking care of David. This begins a period of time that some say lasts a minimum of six years. Some say ten years. Some say fifteen years. It's an extended period of time. That David is a fugitive. He's living in Sherwood Forest. He's, uh, he's there. He's banned. He's, he's basically got a bounty on his head. And that's where we picked up in the story where Saul now is after him. And you read in chapter 23, he sought him every day. For years, at least six to ten years, every day he's being hunted aggressively, actively by Saul. We read that it says that David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life. His father-in-law isn't kidding. His father-in-law isn't trying to just put him out of business or to just get him out of the way. He's trying to kill him. And David is going to go through some tremendous turmoil, tremendous difficulty during these fugitive years. I've given you in your notes a map. A map to just help you in your own Bible study. And it gives you an idea of what these years of, of exile, these years of fleeing for his life, where he ends up going all over that central part of Israel But let me just kind of capsulize and then bring some thoughts to light here as we just go through this entire story. I'm not going to look at any particular text only until we get to chapter 24, but I'm just going to summarize those few chapters for you, and you can follow along as we do this. David flees, and the capital city he flees from that starts this years of being a refugee is from the city of Gibeah. And David flees to what we already mentioned, to Ramah. He's there shortly, and then he goes to the town of Nob. The town of Nob is the worship center where the tabernacle is at this time. It's their holy site. There are priests there, the priests from the, from, that, that are being led by a man by the name of Ahimelech. Ahimelech, when David shows up by himself, Ahimelech says, what are you doing here? David, you've always been with a group of soldiers. What are you doing here? And David, David deceives him. Okay, him like doesn't know what's going on. David says, I'm on a secret mission for the king. And I don't have anybody with me, but I'm really, really hungry. Can you give me some food? There's no food there except for the table of showbread, has the different loaves of bread that are representing the tribes, and typically at the end of the day they either burn some of them or they give them to the priests, their hallowed bread. And so that's how they would dispose of them. He says, I've got no bread here, there's nothing here, there's no food, this is a worship center, this isn't a tourist spot, we have no McDonald's, we have no Wendy's, we have no Burger King, we have nothing here, okay, but all we have is the showbread and David asks if he can have it and Ahimelech gives it to him. And then David asks for something else. David says, do you have any spears or do you have any swords? And Ahimelech responds and he says, well the only thing that we have here is the sword of Goliath that you brought here and dedicated to the Lord and it is on display here so when people come and worship they remember that God gave the victory. And David asked, can I take the sword? There is none other like this sword. Can I have it? Because David's weaponless. He had to flee from his bedroom at night. And so Ahimelech gives David the sword. Now in this picture, you can barely see it, but they're trying to portray all the way at the right, you see a guy in green. This guy in green is there, and we don't know why, but he's there. His name is Doeg. He's an Edomite. He's not there to worship. He's of a different, uh, different uh, whole different group, a nation. But he's, a, he's an Edomite who works for King Saul. He's the chief shepherder, as the passage talks about, or chief you know, provide, taking care of the, the uh, field hands. And so Doeg sees Ahimelech and David talking. Keep that in mind. It's going to come back. David leaves this area, and David goes, in an odd way, David goes to the Philistines. He's going to leave the country. He figures that maybe he can have some type of a treaty with the Philistines, get along with them, do something. And when he gets there, he goes to Achish of Gath. Now when you look at the story, and there's a couple of phrases I want you to catch. I want you to look at verse 11. There in chapter 21, and catch something here in a second. The catch is, he goes to this area that's called Gath. Gath is already known as the hometown of some Philistine hero. Do you remember? I put it on the screen accidentally for a moment. Some of you missed it. Okay. Do you remember who came from Gath that David ran into? Goliath. Goliath is from the town of Gath. David is running to Goliath's hometown. Why? Why would he go to the hometown of the Philistine hero that he killed? What's that? It's the last place King Saul's going to look for him. Who would expect David hiding out in the enemy spot where he is probably more hated than any other Jew by the people of Gath? And David gets there and he's found it out. He's brought before Achish. Okay, and so when he gets there, he's he's there and he's in front of the king, and the 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 people that bring David to King Akesh, they make comments about David. I I, I believe it's in verse eleven. Yeah, look at verse eleven. They say a couple things about David that are very interesting. What how do they describe David, first of all? What title do they give David? They give him the title King. Is David the king at this moment? No. Has he been anointed to be future king? Yes. But who do the enemies think are in charge? They don't think it's Saul. They think it's David. You know, they're, they're the, they're, they're the press, in, Jerusalem, uh, the press in, in, AK, in Gath right now is the president really isn't in control. Okay? <laughs> Somebody else must be calling the shots. And the press is, we think it's David calling the shots. And then they, 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 they know, they've heard the top 40 hit on the Jewish uh, uh, radio stations. What is it? Verse 11. What's the song that they quote? Saul has killed his... And David has killed his... 10,000. Add the word to it. What pe- group of people have are they talking about? Philistines. Yeah, the Philistines are saying, this is the very guy that the Jews are singing about that kills Philistines. And he kills 10,000 Philistines. So David suddenly, David all of a sudden realizes this probably isn't the best place to run. Okay, This isn't a good spot. So how do I get out of this mess? David feigns something. David pretends to do something. Do you remember what it is? He pretends to be crazy. He pretends to all of a sudden have become insane. To have lost his mind. He all of a sudden, and the passage says that he lets the spittle come down through his beard. And understand that in that culture that would be just a real sign of somebody who's imbecilic. And as a result, they don't want to harm this guy. You don't want to bring harm. Superstitious people don't want to harm people that, are, that have some type of a handicap taking place, a mental breakdown taking place, somebody who is you know, w- without any kind of control, and so they let him go. Well, David realized, i got to get out of here, and David leaves. And so David now gets back into the land of Israel and realizes, okay, going to the Philistines by myself isn't a good idea. So I need to find a place to hide out. And he comes to what's called the cave of Adullam. And there he's going to stay and he's going to hide out for a period of time. But what happens, look at verses 1 and 2. Other people start joining him. Other people who are refugees. Look at verse 2 and it's going to, well verse 1 talks about some of the refugees come, including mom and dad, his own family. Question for you, why do his parents have to go on the run? Any idea? Okay. In Old Testament times, if you're if your enemy that you're you want to get rid of, you get rid of your enemy plus the entire family. The entire family. And so mom and dad have to run for their lives which with the conclusion is probably brothers as well which is the conclusion sisters family members they all run and then verse 2 talks about other refugees come who are they're being oppressed by the taxes by the difficulties that Saul is putting upon the people and so those people are upset and they want to get away we read in chapter 22 where it makes that comment where it talks about these people gathering In this moment of time, that it says that those individuals, oh, I gotta get to the right page, excuse me. It says that every one of them that was discontented gathered themselves. The idea is that they are oppressed and they are upset about it. I want you to hold your finger here and go back a few chapters. I want you to realize that this was exactly what was predicted would happen just a few years earlier. Go back to chapter 8. In chapter 8, just, you know, we're talking like 25, 30 years earlier. God had had uh, was leading the people through the high priest. Eli was the guy at the time. Samuel was the guy at the time. And while he was leading, the people said, "We want to be like other nations. We want our king." And Samuel says, "You don't want a king. A king's going to give you problems. You're going to have problems. No, we want a king. We want." And so. Saul was was then revealed to be the king and God predicted this. God says and we're going to jump down to the end of verse 8. When Samuel was there saying okay God will give you a king but keep this in mind. Verse 18 chapter Uh, chapter 8 verse 18. You shall cry out in that day because of your king which you shall have chosen and the Lord will not hear you in that day. What, What are they going to cry out? Well look at the previous verses. He'll take your sons. He'll take your daughters. He'll heavily tax you. He will do things that will be oppressive. God predicted this is exact thing would happen. And here it is now a, few decade, a couple decades later that all of a sudden it's happening. People are fleeing. They want to get away from King Saul because King Saul is acting like the Taliban are acting. And so they want, he wants, they want to get away, and they gather to David. And so David, now this is when the first group of 400 fighting men show up. It's going to expand in the next few chapters. But he gets 400 fighting men, and he has now got David and his merry men. David has to do something with his mom and dad. So he takes mom and dad, and he goes to Mizpah. Mizpah is in the land of Moab. Moabites and Israelites are ancient enemies. They are, they are in conflict. And David says, I need to go there. I need to talk to the king of Moab. And so he has an audience with him. And he asks, can you keep my mom and dad until I know what God wants me to do? And so the king agrees. My question, your question, why go to an ancient enemy to have them take care of your parents? Why would he do that? Any clue? think of his ancestry. Okay, remember who David's dad is? Okay, his dad is Jesse. Okay, his dad, his grandpa, Obed, Obed's mom, Ruth from the land of Moab. So he's taking his parents to the homeland of their grandma so that they could help provide because there is a family tie to that David's immediate family. And so David gets them and they agree, but David doesn't stay there. David leaves. By the way, this is a moment that David is, there's another character introduced, his name is Gad. Gad will stay with David for years and years as his most intimate and successful wisest prophet guide. And so he comes into the story. David returns gets back into the land of Judah. Mom and dad are safe. Now he can have more freedom to be able to move around without having the elderly folk there to slow him down. And David goes to the forest of Harath. And when he goes to the forest, this is the time where you read the account, Saul is uh, Saul has come to a point. He's sick and tired of not being able to hear about where David's at. I'm sick and tired of not being able to catch David. And Saul in his Wisdom turns on his own, his own household, turns on his own guards, turns on his old soldiers and says, what's the matter with you people? You can't catch this guy? Do you think he's going to give you all kinds of possessions? Has he bought you off? Can't any of you give me information? You people, if you don't basically find David, I'll kill you type of attitude. One of the men steps up. One of the men in the court, in the palace at that moment, steps up and says, I've got information. I can tell on David. Anybody want to guess who it is? It's Doeg. Doeg, the one that that saw David talking to Ahimelech, the high priest, back at Nob just weeks before. And he says, I know where he was. He was at Nob. And the priest gave him food. And the priest gave him weapons. And so Saul, in his crazy moment, Saul demands all the priests of Nob come to Gibeah. Come and meet me here. I want to know what in the world you people were doing. And when they get there, there's this conversation recorded between Saul and Ahimelech. And Saul says to the the high priest Ahimelech, he says, what did you do? What were you doing helping my enemy? And Ahimelech responds says, I didn't know he was your enemy. What did David tell Ahimelech? I'm on a secret case I'm I'm Jason Bourne Okay, I'm undercover doing work for for the king and so David David had tricked and misled Ahimelech Ahimelech innocently thinking that David was still working for Saul he helped him out and now Ahimelech is before the king and he's saying I didn't do anything wrong I thought I was doing what was right and besides David is your most faithful servant Why are you so mad at David? Elimech doesn't know what's going on. He's been in Nob. He's not in the capital city. And so the king is just adamant. He says, how dare you give him food? How dare you give him a weapon? Soldiers, kill all of these priests. Think about that. All of a sudden, the king wants to wipe out the priesthood of Israel. And all the Jewish soldiers standing by, their response is... What do you think? Oh, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to touch a, king, uh, a priest. I'm not going to kill any of them. And so none of the Jewish officers, soldiers, even though Saul is on the border of you know, nuts, being crazy, they all refuse. None of them lifts a sword. And the king says, is there anybody who will do what I want and kill these priests? One guy stands up. I'll do it got to guess it's doeg the edomite he has no uh, any attachment at all to the priest he doesn't care about the jewish worship system so what happens uh, doeg he takes a sword and he starts he, and he starts killing all the priests right there in the capital city and he wipes them out and then the passage goes on doeg goes to the town of nob where all the priests families children All of them them live, and he goes and wipes out the entire town. And it says very clearly, even the wives, the women, the children, and the suckling babies, the passage says. Even infants. This ungodly man just slaughters them all. It's a genocide. But one of the priests escapes. One of them. And there's only one. And this one that escapes is Ahimelech's son, Uh, he goes by two different names, Ahitab which is his grandfather's name but his name that he chooses to go by more is Abiathar and so Abiathar flees and naturally Abiathar goes to the one person that could protect him from Saul, he goes to David he finds where David is, he tells David exactly what happened to his dad, what happened to all of his relatives, all of his family that were just killed by Saul by the hand of Doag, but Saul's order, and David, David's response. We're gonna, we, we, we need to pause and look at David's response. Here, go in the text, and you jump down, and uh, we're in chapter 22 yet, and we read when David says, and go down to chapter 22, the end of the chapter, the last two verses. It says, Abiathar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priest. David said, I knew it. I knew it that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. And David's response, notice the next phrase. I'm responsible. I have provided an occasion the death of all the persons of your father's house. David felt some form of responsibility for the death of the priests. Saul feels nothing. Saul absolutely feels only hatred and jealousy. David, the Robin Hood of this time, he's the one that feels. He's the one that understands that the people need these priests, that this is vital. David is concerned about the people and the, the, uh, their relationship with the Lord. Saul could care less. Who is the more righteous man? Who is it? Clearly, David is a man after God's own heart. But it goes on that what happens is David has to go on the run and by the way before I go any further I want you to catch a historical note about the priests of Nob that were killed. It's an interesting historical situation. It had been predicted years earlier that they would all be killed. They'd be wiped out. The reason we know that is in 1 Samuel chapter 2 when we go back several decades. Eli was the high priest at the time, and Eli had two sons. Do you remember who they are? Hophni and Phinehas. Good or bad guys? Bad. Okay, very wicked priests. Very wicked priests. What did Eli do to stop his boys from their wickedness? Nothing. He scolded them, but did nothing. God says, the day shall come when I will cut off the arm of, I should do it this way for those watching, Um, when I will cut off the arm of thy father's house that there shall not be an old man in your house. In other words, Eli all your sons, grandsons, great grandsons, your part of the Levitical family, they're going to be wiped out. They're going to be killed. One day there won't be anybody left. That was predicted. It came to pass that there's only one left in the story that we're reading right now, that we're referring to. Everybody else has been killed, just like God had said. And by the way, just to let you know, Abiathar is going to to turn against David in a few years, and before he has a family, any added family, he will be executed for treason. This prophecy comes to pass, exactly as God said, fulfilled right to the letter. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that in a moment. David goes on the run. He goes to a city, that he, he ends up hearing that the city of Keilah, which is a fortress Jewish city, that it's under attack by the Philistines. They send him a text that, he, that says, please come and help us out, because they, 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 they don't send a messenger to Saul, they send a messenger to David. Interesting. And so David is not sure, he says, okay I'm going to go and his men say, uh-uh. We don't want to go to Keilah. You know, remember, we're running from Saul. Those people should go to the king. And when the king hears about the Philistines, surely he's going to come to Keilah anyway. We shouldn't go. So David does something. David inquires of the Lord. He says, should I go? Shouldn't I go? And God says, go. And David's men say, no, no. And so David inquires a second time. Should I go and help out the city of Keilah? God says, go. David arrives And he thoroughly beats the Philistines who are on the outside of the city, attacking the city. And David then is welcomed into the city as the victor, as the deliverer of the city. And the people are all excited about David. But then Saul hears that David has rescued Keilah. And it's told Saul that David's inside the city of Keilah. And so David, or Saul immediately gets his troops together and marches towards Keilah, not to rescue them from the Philistines, but to capture David inside the city. David's response is, God, what do I do? Will the people of Keilah protect me after I've rescued them? And God says, they won't. They'll turn you over to Saul. You need to leave. And so he leaves and he runs. By the way, this is the first mention of 600 men And so now he has to go on the lamb again. The people that he helped turned against him. His father-in-law is against him. And it just doesn't stop. So he goes to the wilderness of Ziph. And he gets to this wilderness, and it's there that Jonathan, we looked at here three weeks ago, Jonathan came and makes a covenant and says, my dad is wrong, you will be the king, I will serve you, I will do whatever I can to protect you. And this is the last time they see each other. And David asks God, he says, God, should I stay here in in the wilderness of Ziph? And God's going to direct him to go because the Ziphites, they have sent a message to King Saul. They said, hey, your enemy David is here. And if you come, we we will take you to him. We know exactly in our region where he's at. So David has to flee again because Saul is coming and Saul is going to try to get him. Now when Saul comes... Saul brings with him a serious number of soldiers, okay? And he's ready to get rid of David. And so David goes to this area called Moan, and there's one mount there. And the story unfolds that David is going around one side of the mount to get away from Saul, and Saul, and they're they're, doing this type of thing on those rocky crags and paths, and David is about to get caught. Finally, he's trapped on this mountain, but just then a message comes. A message comes to, from another region and it says, King Saul, we need you. We're being attacked. The Philistines have invaded the land of Israel. And so King Saul has to leave off the attack. He cuts, he's done. He has to go and protect his territory. And that gives David the opportunity to get down from the mount and run and get away from Saul. And so you have all of this happening where God used international armies to provide a rescue for David. David. Now up to this point, you know, where are we at with this story? What's the point? Why all this history that for some of you go oh, I don't care about mystery novels. I don't care about this kind of stuff. Would you care about this? Would you care about this lesson that is critical to your everyday living? Remember this simple lesson that, that, that just, it just comes out of these chapters time and time again. And I've already alluded to uh, several of the illustrations that, that are supportive of this truth. God said it, that settles it. God said it, that settles it. Now, in our day people have made the bumper sticker to say, God settles it, I believe it, that settles uh, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Take away, I believe it. It doesn't make any difference whether we believe or not. God said it, that settles it. That's the truth. That truth is illustrated in this passage. In two different ways. In the way that what God says could be considered bad, it will happen. It was in the case I've already mentioned. You will regret your king. You will feel oppressed by him. It happened. We already pointed that out in the text. Your entire lineage will be wiped out, priests. It happened. We've already pointed that out. There is a biblical truth that your sin will find you out. That biblical truth, that sin that is unhindered will become greater and greater in, in, uh, in controlling you. Look at Saul. Saul is getting worse and worse by the minute. He is, just, he is imbalanced. He is just given to evil to the point that he wants to kill off the priest of Israel. For a, for a king at that moment, how despicable. It is true. What God says that is warnings, what God says about judgment, it will come to pass. What God says that is good to David, David, you will be the king. It's very clear in this text. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. God intervenes time and time again to provide, protect, to make sure. Now that doesn't mean that David has an easy road. That doesn't mean because David's been told you're going to be the king that your path is going to be filled with roses all the way to the throne. We see in this text that it's not true. God is is, is molding David. God is bringing David to the point where he has nobody else to turn to but God. And it is so difficult. It is so hard. But God is preparing him because God has promised him you will be the king and it comes to pass. That truth is true for us today. What God says will come to pass, no matter who you are. What God has said that applies to you, it is true. What God says, no matter how much time passes by, you all of a sudden get involved with something, you never confess it, you never deal with it, and you say, I got away with it. Be sure your sin, no matter how much time goes by. It's a truism. It's a truism. No matter what others say, what others tell you, Oh, not it it, it, it'll be okay if you do such and such against the word of the Lord. No matter what others try to, try to say, you know, it, it, it's never going to happen. You know, God doesn't keep his word. It, God, what God says is going to come to pass. No matter what your circumstances say. You might be like David in a moment where you feel like you're in a wilderness. You feel like everybody is hunting you. You feel like you, wherever you turn, there is something, somebody that is making life to the point that you don't know if you can go on. But God has said, God has promised, I will never allow you to suffer that which is beyond your ability, no matter what your circumstances. You say, I can't even, I can't even meet my needs. God says, I will provide your needs. Don't let circumstances dictate your faith. Let the word of God. Here, let, let me give you an illustration. Uh, that goes. God says it. It settles it. That gives me great hope. It gives me great help. Heaven is a reality. God talks about heaven. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I find help in knowing there's a heaven ahead. I find hope in that. I find hope in the fact that we can know we're going to heaven. That you can know that you're on your way. These things have I written to you that believe that you may know. Not a hope so, not a guess so. God said we can know. And if you don't know this day, at the end of the service when we sing a song, please get from your seat and go meet the people who will be right by those doors. They will show you from the Bible the prayer you need to pray so you can know that you have eternal life. Why? Because God said you can. God says that the rapture is coming. I think it should have come last week. Okay? Every event that I can see, every prophecy that's there, and the events that are going on in the world, it seems to me that he should have come already. But he's coming. He's coming. He said it. He's coming. And people will say, he's been saying that for 2,000 years. That's okay. God said it. That settles it he's coming. The fact that our prayers can be answered because if we pray, he's going to answer. Now it may not be exactly the way we want, but God will answer prayers. How do I know that? God said it. God said it that we are never alone. God said it that he never abandons us. God said it that he is meeting with us right now, right here where two or three are gathered, I am in your midst. God said it, that settles it. That we won't be tried above what we are able. That our needs will be met. That if we confess our sins, he will forgive us and cleanse us. That the spirit will guide us. God settled, said it. That settles it. Now that also provides great warning. That also provides great challenge. That, cha- that says to us, okay, we got to be careful. Because God said it. It's true in this fact. There's going to be a judgment day. In this fact that hell is as real as heaven is real. If you reject Christ, if you say, I don't need to be born again, I don't need to call upon Christ, I will get to heaven all by myself. The word of God says, not by the works of righteousness which we have done, but only according to his mercy that we are saved. Not of works lest any man should boast. God said it. I can't get to heaven by baptism. I can't get to heaven by being a preacher. I can't get to heaven by going to church. I can't get to heaven because I'm an American. I get to heaven by having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if I don't have that relationship, hell. That's scary. That's challenging. But God said it. That settles it. God said it that you will reap what you sow. God said it that your sin will find you out, that you will give an account of yourself. These are challenging. These are warnings. God said it. The way of the transgressor is hard. People will say this all the time. I'm going to leave my, my family. I'm going I'm to leave my spouse, and it'll work out. It'll be okay. It won't be okay. The way of the transgressor is hard. We, we know that those of you working on your home, you say, okay, okay, it's, it's difficult. Hey, listen. If you don't work with the Lord in your home... It's not going. Your home is, isn't going to isn't going to evolve, isn't going to build into a godly, godly residence. Except the Lord build the house. They that labor labor in vain. You need Christ. You need to have a threesome working in that family, at the head of the home. God, you, and your spouse. You said, "Hey, it's difficult to train children in this life," and it's not popular right now to use any form of discipline or correction. But the rod and reproof give wisdom. A child left to himself brings his mother to shame. It's not easy to correct, to discipline and disciple a child. It's not fun. That's why I told my wife she does it all. No, that's, that wasn't the case. It's not, but it's necessary because God said this. So we have that one principle. We have a second principle that you need to walk away with. The second principle is, this one says, God said that settles it. Godly people seek to do right even in difficult times. Godly people seek to do right even in difficult times. David, a man after God's own heart. Not a perfect man, okay? He tried things in his own way at moments. He went to the Philistines and he got himself into worse mess. But the fact of the matter is, even in his most difficult days, and they were difficult, they were hard. They're they're over with but the passage makes it clear it is hard for David. What did he do? What did this man after God's own heart, this imperfect man like us, what did he do that enabled him to do right and to go through the difficult times? He's going to end up on the throne but the path to the throne is hard. What did he do? Can I share with you, in closing, five different thoughts? Five different steps that David put into his life. Number one was this. Godly people who are going to make it through difficult times, they always do this. They regularly seek after God's fellowship, his will, his word. They stay close to the Lord. Watch David. When he was talking with Ahimelech, it says he inquired of the Lord of him. He had, when he was in Nob, he wanted to know, God, what do you want me to do? We read, David inquired of the Lord. We read, David inquired of the Lord. We read, when he says to Abithar, bring the ephod, that which was used, the high priestly vestment, that they would use to use the stones, however it was done, so that they'd get an indication. God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. Do you want, do you want to see something really interesting? Go to the Psalms David wrote during this time. Go to Psalm 52. It's amazing how these psalms read if you know the story. Psalm 52. For those of you who don't know where it's at, it's after 51. Psalm 52. Look at the title of the psalm and it'll help you to understand. This is is written when David hears that Doeg has killed all the priests. Watch David's writing. Why boast thou thyself in the mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devised mischief, like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You loved evil more than good, lying rather than to speak righteousness. You loved all devouring words, you, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place and root thee out of the land of the living." The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. That's Doeg. That's Doeg. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. While I'm running from this guy, while I'm in the wilderness, I will praise thee forever because you have done it. I will wait on your name for it is good before thy saints. Do you want to see another one? Go a couple chapters later. A couple chapters later. This is when David is hiding in Ziph and the Ziphites are telling Saul, come, come, we got him in our area. Save me, O God, by thy name. Judge me by thy strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Strangers are risen up against me and oppressors seek after my soul. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with me that uphold my soul. He shall reward evil unto my enemies. Cut them off in the truth. He, I will freely sacrifice unto thee. I will praise thy name, O God, for it is good. For he hath delivered me out of all trouble. Mine eyes have seen his desire upon mine enemies. Go to chapter 56. Chapter 56. This is when all of a sudden he goes to Gath. And he's there and he ends up pretending to be insane. He writes these words while he's there Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. uh, He fighting daily oppresseth me. My enemies would daily swallow me up, for there be many that fight against me, O thou most high. What time I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Jump down to verse 10. In God will I praise his word, in the Lord will I praise his word, in God have I put my trust, I will not be afraid what man can do to me, thy vows are upon me, O God, I will render praises to thee, you gave me a promise, I'll be the king, I don't understand, but I'm going to trust in you, for thou hast delivered my soul from death, Will will you not deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Amazing! He wanted fellowship with God. He didn't turn against God. He wanted God's direction. He's going to praise God. He's going to sing to God. He's going to worship in the middle of a difficult moment. What about you? Have any difficulties lately? Any of you feel isolated? Any of you feel like they're out to get you? Any of you feel like you're at a border and you need to flee the land and it could cost you your life? Any of you feel like somebody close to you, a family member has turned against you? It could be a spouse. It could be a parent. It could be a child. It could be a distant relative. And it hurts. And you're challenged. It could be a coworker, It could be a classmate. And you're going through these difficult moments. What about you and the Lord? What about you in the moments where you feel like the roof is caving in? Have you run from the Lord or have you run to the Lord? See, those who are godly seek God even in the difficult moments. Give me a second thought. Second thought is they consistently follow God's commands. With that, let's add this, and they keep a clean conscience. I want you to go to chapter 24 and watch this portrayed in David's life. This is where we end up this morning, where we stop. In chapter 24, what happens is Saul has defeated the Philistines. He goes back on the attack. He takes 3,000 men and he chases after where he hears where David is. David is in the land of En or in the area of Engedi. When Saul is chasing and getting close to David, and I mean he's close to David as we see in this story, Saul needs to take a break. The passage says he found a cave to cover his feet. In other words, he needed a bathroom break. And so he found a spot where he can have privacy to go to the bathroom. It's a cave. He goes inside this cave and as he is going to relieve himself, he doesn't realize it but David and his men are in this cave. That's how close he's gotten. And they're close enough. David's there and his men and, well let me me just pause. If you were one of David's men, what would you want to do? this guy guy catches you, he's going to kill you. There's no doubt about it, he's going to kill you. What would you want to do at this moment? He's got no bodyguards. He's he's off balance in the sense that he's not protecting himself, he's relieving himself. What would the temptation be? Get even? Get rid of him? End the problem? End the nightmare? so David's men encourage David to do that look at the the text look what they say to David they say the men of David said unto him verse 4 behold the day which the Lord said behold I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you David arose and David cuts off the hem of his garment that's how close they are and Saul doesn't even realize it and so what happens is think this through Despite the encouragement of his men, despite the opportunity that circumstances seem to present, despite the idea that this would finish it up, everything would turn out good if I would attack, David refuses to attack Saul. Why? He's the Lord's anointed. David understands a biblical principle for that time period that Saul was God's anointed and David had no right to take his life. Even though it would have really benefited David, even though others were telling him to do it, even though it put an end to the nightmare, David says I can't do it. I can't do it because God said I can't do it because this isn't right to do. David cuts off the hem of the garment and then David feels guilty about doing that to the Lord's anointed. And when Saul leaves the cave, David calls out to him, as we'll read in a moment, and he says, I cut off your garment. I shouldn't have even done that. What an amazing challenge. What an amazing thought that you and I are supposed to obey the Lord's commands even though it may not be the popular thing to do. The popular thing to do is to get even, to strike out somebody slaps you, you slap them back so they'll never slap you again. It's popular right now. It's a popular thing to be immoral. It's a popular thing to spice up your marriage with an affair. It's a popular thing to cuss and to swear. But God has told us we can't do that. It it is at times encouraged To do things that are forbidden for believers. And yet others who are unbelievers or some carnal believers encourage you. Disobey your parents. Skip church. Don't be charitable. It's okay to lie and to cheat. It's not. If God says it, that settles it and we follow his commands. It it might be beneficial to lie or to cheat on that test. It might be beneficial to be to, unprofitable, to not report everything on your taxes. It might be beneficial to give a false insurance claim. It might be beneficial in your mind to tear other people down, but God says you can't do it. You can't do it. And those who are godly that make it through the trials and they maintain godliness are those who obey God's commands. Even when it's not popular, it's not encouraged, we a few weeks ago. I, I don't know what got over me. I, I think I had a Saul moment. I agreed to a garage sale. I, I just don't, don't know what's, what got into me. And so we're going through the different items and somebody pointed out to us, you know, because we were talking about getting rid of certain items. One of the items that our family with, a, you know, with grandkids and things have collected a lot of are car seats. And so we had these car seats. And it was, what do we do with car seats? And somebody had said, well, I can tell you what most people do with car seats. You can sell them and get good money at garage sales. But you do realize that's illegal. Yes, right? No? You can't, you can't, legally you can't do that. You can't sell them. And if they're after a certain number of years or been in an accident, you can't, you're not supposed to be passing them on. It's like the cribs that we had here at church when we had to get rid of certain cribs, we couldn't give them away. We couldn't sell them because they were of a certain, they had to be disposed of. I know it's wasteful, but that's the law. And so it was pointed out, you know, people do it all the time. You know, and you could make a few bucks and maybe you could take some of that money and give it to the church. But it's wrong. Even though it's popular, even though it's encouraged, it would be wrong to do. Not only would it be disobeying but what would that do to my near my, conscience? You see, David had a type of which This is amazing. You want to see a conscience get seared? Follow Saul's life. You want to see a guy who keeps a clean conscience? He's not perfect, but he wants to keep it clean. He, he's the guy who, when the priests were killed, it bothered him that he had something to do with it in a very, very distant way. It bothered him. It bothered him that he had put a Ahimelech in danger. It, it bothered David so much so that when he cut off the robe, he makes comment to the king. It came to pass afterwards, verse 5, that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. That he had even done that He was encouraged to cut off his head, cut off his life, but it bothered him that he cut off the robe. What bothers you? Does it bother you to lie or has it become a common part of your conversation? In your life, when you gossip about people, does it bother you? Or have you seared your conscience so much so that it's okay? Everybody else is doing it. Does it bother you when you go for days without prayer? Does it bother you that you forget to pick up the word of God and to eat it, to feed on it? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Does it bother you when you disrespect your parents or instead do you feel emboldened and powerful when you sin against your parents by disrespect? See, our conscience all of a sudden, we can sear it by saying, it's okay, I can be angry at a family member and still go to church and worship. Though Jesus said, if you have ought, you deal with it. But we cover it up, we cover it up, We cover up these things, we justify them, and then we wonder why it seems so distant between us and the Lord. Godly people try to keep a clean conscience. Can I give you another thought? This one. You need to be a person of compassion. You need to be a person of compassion. During the middle of these difficulties, you still need to be a person of compassion. My text for this is Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, that's in the New Testament. It's in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to catch something out of this text. Keep your finger in chapter 24, 1 Samuel, but Matthew chapter 5. This is a very, very, very important text for you and I to understand because we have heard that it's said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but verse 39, Jesus speaking, our Lord, our Master, our Commander. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whatsoever shall smite thee, whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If any man will sue thee at the law take your, to take away your coat, let him have your cloak. Whoever shall compel you to go a mile, give him two. Give to him that asks thee, without worrying about borrowing. You have heard it said, you have heard that it hath been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say... What does He tell them to do? What does He say? But I say unto you, verse 44, do what with your enemies? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. May I make an observation out of this text? That is an important observation. He did not command us to like our enemies. He commanded us to love our enemies. The people who had hurt you. He didn't say you have to like them. Like them deals with feelings. Like them deals with, you know, you know that, that emotional aspect. Love is dealing with actions. You treat them right. You do right. You don't become vengeful. You don't retaliate. You do what's right. You do what's good for them. You even know retaliation. You give up your rights, your property. You do the extra mile. Watch David. In 1 Samuel, living this out, years before it was stated by Jesus. Watch David's words in chapter 24. When David comes out of that cave, watch what he says when he calls to to Saul. Verse 8 David, moreover, rose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, What is he called, Saul? Hey, you jerk! Did he say that? What's he say? My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, what did David do? Cast a spear? Cast an arrow? He bowed, stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. In fact, go down a little bit further. What does he call this man in verse 11? My father. He spoke with respect. Now, don't get me wrong. Does David challenge Saul? Oh, absolutely. Look at the text. He loves him enough to say, what you're doing is wrong. You need to stop. You have come after me and I have done nothing to you. And so here he is. He's warning. Wickedness will just keep on doing wickedness. You've got to stop, buddy. But there's David showing compassion, self-control, letting God take care of it in a moment when he could have killed this man who was after his life. Can we add, add this thought? Okay. Are you an individual when it comes to arguments you have to have the last word? Are you an individual that you do turn the other cheek or do you have to lash out? Are you an individual who insist on getting your rights, even though it may mean you're not acting righteous. Are you an individual who is respectful? Do you harbor resentment? David puts it aside and says, we can't do that. We can't do that. i close with this thought. David does the last of all these things, which is probably the first of them all. David trusts the Lord. He says to Saul, the Lord therefore be judge... Judge between me and you and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of thine hand. It's up to God. I have to leave this in the Lord. We already read David's songs where he's trusting God. But what strikes me and what challenges me more than anything is this. We said God said that says that godly people will seek to do what's right even in difficult times. In the middle of the difficult times, we read the Psalms that David was still singing. He was still praising God. He was still worshiping the Lord. He was still trusting in God. May I ask you a really pointed question? What have been your songs in recent days? What has your speech sounded like? What have your songs of woe, whining, or worship? What have they been? Because out of the mouth, or out of the heart proceeds the words from the mouth. Let me ask you a really, 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 really pointed question. What's your song going to be this week? Do you need to change your tune? I hope. I hope that this week when things don't go the way I want them to go. I hope when the weather isn't the weather I want it to be. I hope when Deb isn't as good to me as I deserve to be treated. I hope my words are like we sang earlier. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. You are always good. So with that in mind, maybe, maybe we need to take a song this morning and to sing this song to the Lord and asking Him to help us with our lips, our thoughts, to really honor Him, to get it right, to be right this week.